Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Hever. Dr. Alok Patel is a physician, journalist, and producer who firmly believes humor and relatability should drive science communication. He's a special correspondent for ABC News and regularly appears as an on-camera expert for several news outlets. He's not only the co-host of Parental Logic, a digital series from Nova and PBS Digital Studios on the science of parenting, but he also hosts a popular web series for Medscape. He's previously worked as a medical producer for CNN and HLN, and as a host and contributor for both ABC and NBC News in New York. He's a pediatric hospitalist at Columbia University, Stanford University, and the University of California, San Francisco. Sit back and listen to how this man of medicine chooses to be funny, fearless, and unflappable. Dr. Alok Patel, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's so fun to listen to you talk. You come from such an interesting perspective, your background in medicine and as a pediatric hospitalist and doing all this journalism and all of this and all of your interviews. You are so optimistic and you always have this bright light on your face. And I was so excited to talk to you today because that's kind of what we talk about here. And I wanted to start maybe with the most exciting news for you recently. Congratulations. You're a new dad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Can, can, I, can I also tell you that I appreciate you uh, making those comments about my tone and how I present information. And maybe I should get more comments like that rather than all the haters who slide into my DMs. Oh, those haters. We just have to ignore the haters. But yeah, no, you're like this bright, sunny light talking about the most complicated things in the world right now. And you always have a really positive perspective. And I really appreciate that. So ignore all the haters. We just have to move on. We've got to choose us now. But what is it like, I'm so curious, for a pediatrician to navigate first-time fatherhood? I, this, is, this is a great question, and rightfully so. Because you know we often use this term in medicine, textbook versus reality. So there's information that comes from medical journals and books. And then there's like what actually happens in the real world. And I've never seen a bigger smack in the face <laughs> of the difference than with this little bundle of joy. And I saying joy with air quotes, but you can't see me. <laughs> that is that is my extremely adorable daughter. And, you know, it's been fascinating because for the past decade, I have been studying pediatrics. I work as an academic pediatrician. I work in a hospital. So I take care of hospitalized children and from a textbook standpoint and understanding the pathophysiology and how disease works and anatomy, I'm comfortable with, with, with taking care of a child. But I've heard for years from parents who are stressed out, sleep deprived, Googling information at 2 a.m. and figuring out if their child has reflux or cancer. And now being in that shoe, it's given me this incredible roller coaster ride and the dichotomy of being a doctor dad. And, you know, it's it's funny because there's little things that my daughter will do. Like, for example, she won't poop for five days, which in the majority of times in an exclusively breastfed infant, that's okay. But then part of me is like, hey, it's she's breastfed. She's absorbing things really well. She's okay. And then my other doctor brain is like, oh, my God, she's got Hirschsprung's disease. <laughs> and she has a critical issue and she's not stooling right now. And so, you know, it it's it's been a ride and it's been very humbling and I'll be completely honest, and this should surprise zero people. It's given me a lot more empathy and another way to bond with the many people I take care of and talk to. 
Oh, you just said so many things I want to unpack. First, I wanted to tell you, I'm a dietitian and I'm in healthcare for a long time. And I have the same thing with what I've learned and what I see in the real world is completely smack in the face. But even as I was an EMT and I, you know, I was, I've been certified in CPR for 25 years. When my baby, when my baby choked, I couldn't even, I couldn't even function. I, I couldn't do what I know how to do. And it's amazing how like you forget everything because you're, or you're just, your mind is so different when it's that love of your life that you're holding in your arms. You just want to protect and your mind goes crazy. And I've never had an experience like that. So I appreciate you sharing that. It's so real. It's so real. It's so real. And I want to also unpack that what you said, I mean, as a pediatric hospitalist, so for anyone that doesn't know what that means, I mean, you're seeing little kids and babies that are either fighting for their life or struggling with all sorts of things. It takes a very special person to fill that role. So can you talk a little bit more about that? And I, I love that it's evolved now that you're a dad, but how do you handle all of that? It's a, it's, I'm just curious how you feel about it. It's a lot. Before I get into that, can I just share one thing that really surprised me Please. and, and kind of had my head spinning regarding being a new dad? Cause I, and I'm sharing this with you because this has resonated with so many people as I've taken to Instagram to talk about it. Is there are certain things that we don't address as academic pediatricians, because it's not necessarily in our wheelhouse, but as a dietitian, this, this might connect with you, but supporting breastfeeding, supporting a breastfeeding partner has been so difficult and humbling. Like things like, you know, breast milk production and supporting like my wife, Jenna, supporting her, bringing her, bringing her water, simple things like that. Head positioning, latching, why my baby won't eat, even though my baby's a mammal and needs calories and there's food right in front of her and she cries and she's like, I don't want to eat. Why she won't take a bottle for me? Like these very basic things that we've been dealing with for generations are surprisingly difficult. And I'm not here to say like you must breastfeed. There's a lot of formula fed babies out there and that's cool. But feeding a damn baby is so much harder than I thought. Anyway, now moving on to what no, you mentioned. Thank you for saying that because as a mom and as a dietitian, you know, I spent time at um, WIC and teaching moms about breastfeeding and thinking, oh, of course you got to breastfeed, blah, blah, blah. And when it was real and I was actually doing it, it was insane. Like you just said, like it's so so much different in person. So I appreciate hearing that from you. <laughs> I'm like, how, how have we survived for, for millions of years? I'm, I'm so confused right now. Seriously. But going back to what you mentioned about being a pediatric hospitalist, you know, I feel extremely fortunate that I was born in a zip code where I, where I was given the opportunity to be able to pursue something like where I am right now. And I get reminded of that every single day when I have to take a out of body moment and say, oh my God, this is my job. And, you know, that sounds very meta, but the reason I say that is I have started reflecting, especially in the past two years, but over the last couple of years that as a pediatric hospitalist, we really do see the full spectrum of the human experience. And I'm not, I'm not being like tongue in cheek right now. I see people on the best day of their life when their baby is born or when the baby is cured or when a teenager who drowned and, and was pronounced dead is no longer dead and alive and walking out the hospital. Oh. And you, you see these moments and... It, 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 it knocks you on your, it knocks you off your feet. Right. But then I also, on the flip side, I see the worst day of people's lives. And I see the opposite of what I just mentioned to you. And you see these moments when all of a sudden money, social status, material, like none of that shit matters anymore. And we get, we get ripped right back down to our primal instinct of survival and taking care of our loved ones. And I experience that on a daily basis. And I have, I've learned how to appreciate that and realize that there's only a select group of people on this planet who deal with that as part of their jobs. 
And so I'm very honored to be there. And then also, I mean, pediatrics just rules in terms of medicine. It's fun. It's intellectual. It, it gets me energized in the morning. And I mean, there, we could, this could be a three hour podcast. If I just simply talked about why I like hospital pediatrics, I'm not going to do that to your listeners. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, it's, but it's different yeah. because I rotated through that department during my internship and I couldn't handle it. I was in the bathroom crying all the time. I don't know if you get stronger or if you just have to focus on the positive, but I think it's quite extraordinary the way you handle it and your perspective. Tumbling. Well, I'm not trying to jump to the end of your to the thesis of the of the podcast, but you know we compartmentalize a lot in medicine, and that's not something that's unique just to being a frontline healthcare worker. A lot of fields in the in, in this world, people compartmentalize. They see disaster, they see suffering, and it hits them. But then they have to table it because they need to work on the next project or the next patient or the next disaster, and then it just kind of bottles up. So I've had to learn over the years and how to separate. And be present with the next patient and then deal with whatever emotions I'm feeling, anger, frustration. You know, sometimes I want to break a window when I hear about a situation a child's been through. I got to table that and then, you know, circle back to it later and make sure that I'm, I'm back to running at 100. Wow. Okay. So this is a perfect segue to my next question. And it's basically about this past year and a half, almost two years now. It has been so tough on everyone, obviously, but especially healthcare workers. So I'm curious if you would describe some of the things you've seen and experienced, how you've evolved your thinking after this whole long period of time, especially as a spokesperson out there talking about it publicly all the time. I, I feel like I've been continuously shocked, saddened, and surprised at every stage of this god-awful pandemic that has been going on for far too long, even though we've had the tools to stop it. That's for another conversation. Yeah. But, but you know... <laughs> I've been continuously reminded of two things, of the fact that we have a long way to go when it comes to addressing the disparity in healthcare in this country. And the pandemic was this fat flashlight shining on all the fissures in our society, especially when it comes to people being able to take care of themselves and the resources they need. And I get reminded of that. During the pandemic, I have seen you know, families torn apart because of positive infections and because of hospitalized loved ones. And people have often run out on media and said like, oh, children do great. Children are fine. They don't get COVID. You know, our previous president said children are immune. Well, I have a couple things to say about that. Number one, children are not immune. I have seen hospitalized children. I've seen children wind up in the ICU. I've also seen long hauler children, meaning these are kids who may or may not have had a positive, you know, SARS-CoV-2 test, but then are like, oh my God, I'm a varsity football player. Why do I have knee pain? six months later, like, why, why does my chest hurt? Why do I have a brain fog? And I've seen these cases and it's debilitating on these kids. I've also seen kids go through horrific mental health struggles. And, you know, there's studies showing an increased amount of visits to the emergency department for kids presenting with mental illness because of what the pandemic has done. And then one thing we got to not forget, thousands of kids in this country, especially across the world, have lost their parents They've lost loved ones. They've lost a, a, a means of security, of support, of, of money. Like, I mean, this is horrific on what's happened to our children. I've seen the entire spectrum of that, you know, and specific things I can talk about regarding the fear. And, you know, I mentioned earlier the spectrum of human emotion in my field. When I was in New York last spring and summer, you know, I was working in a COVID labor and delivery unit. So taking care of newborn babies born to COVID positive mothers. These moms wanted to do everything they could to protect their babies. But back then with the unknown, with the fear, with you know the anxiety around it, I had to take a step back. And oftentimes we're saying, listen, I don't know, which is a very difficult thing 
for a doctor to say, I don't know, right. but to do everything we can to make sure like, Hey, your baby and you are in the best possible place right now. And we're going to do everything in our power to make sure you're safe. And it's, so it's been truly humbling. And, you know, I think, I guess the next thing we can talk about is how also incredibly frustrating this has been when people just aren't listening to evidence-based advice. And we're still having to play this COVID misinformation debunking game and, and try to convince half the country to go out and get the vaccine, which we know is safe and works. Right. It's kind of mind blowing, really. We haven't talked about that here, but I, I do feel the same way and it's really frustrating. So I'm glad you're saying it. I'm glad you're such an advocate for this, but yeah, it's like beating your head against the wall. It's how I feel about teaching diet. It's like, oh, it's so frustrating. So, okay. It's obviously like you're saying, it's been very challenging on our children and um, I'm a mom too. How can we as parents help our kids? You know, now they're back in school. My, both of my kids are now in high school and we're all still trying to acclimate to this weird new, I hate calling it new normal, but this weird situation. Do you have any advice um, for the parents out there? Oh my gosh. I First of all, I really respect the fact that you're even asking this question and that you know, you're obviously a, a healthcare professional and evidence-based, but you're still cognizant as a mom. And I'm not trying to preach to the choir right now, but I think it's so important that people out there are are asking, like, how do I take care of my children, but also looking at the different stages our kids are in. And I think we do children a disservice when we constantly run around and talk about how resilient they are and how they're going to bounce back. Kids are great. Yes, they are. They're really resilient. And they don't look at the world as pessimistically as adults bitching on Twitter do. But <laughs> kids still have lost a lot in the, in the past year. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that. And so one one very simple thing that parents can do is listen to your children. Don't simply try to fix their problems or, you know, interrupt them or say, don't worry about it. Listen to what they're going through. Are they afraid of COVID? Are they afraid of missing their kids? Do they think, you know, the government conspiracy about microchips and vaccines are real? I mean, just listen to your kids and talk to them and offer reassurance. And it doesn't have to be this massive grand you know, conversation, like it can be on a day-to-day basis. Like, what are you worried about today? How do you feel today? Just simple check-ins. Children get their security and their comfort from the world around them. If you talk to kids about how they felt during stressful times, whether it was a natural disaster, you know, an outbreak or something in the family, they often get cues from the people around them. And so your level of stress, your calm, that's really going to rub off on kids. You know, I think, you know, we can, we can learn a lot from children and how they take in information because their end goal is to be happy. That is literally what kids want to do. They're not sitting here and being like, oh my God, I got to fix my 401k. You know, am I going to get into the best college? Like, I mean, yes, teens will think that, but kids are like, how do I have fun? You know, I, the one thing I'll add is I worked on a story with ABC News and we talked about returning back to school. And while the adults and the health professionals were talking about safely bringing back to kids to school and ventilation and masks and layer protection, and vaccine mandates, we're interviewing kids. So these are young kids aged from like four to 10. And these kids were being so real. They were like, hey, I'm a little bit scared, but at the same time, I know if I wear a mask, I'm gonna be able to hang out with my friends again. And I just want everyone to be safe, but I'm so excited to get back to in-person learning. And it's it's awesome when you see how optimistic kids are. So we hang on to that, just check in with your kids. And at the end of the day, if anything is off with your children, or you have any questions or concerns, there is no reason at all to feel like you have done something wrong or you've missed something. Just chat with a professional. Get your kid's mental health checked out. Like that is as routine and normal as getting your blood pressure checked. And so I would encourage anyone out there to not hesitate 
and just, you know, ask for some professional help if you need it. It's all good. We all do it. Oh, I love so much that you just said that because we need to normalize that as well. And it's such good advice. Listening. We don't, most of us don't listen well enough, especially as a parent and you're trying to get your kids to do certain things and we forget how sensitive they are and how they just absorb energy. And I love what you just said. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. I, listen, uh, 30 second segue, because I have to tell you this story now. Oh, good. When I first decided, I, mean, I, I also think I'm jumping on your, I might be jumping on another question, but when I first decided that I wanted to go into medicine, I had this one professor and he's like, listen, everybody says they want to go into medicine because they want to help people. How are you going to deal with people, you know, if and when they die? Or how are you going to deal with their families? And I was like, well, that's heavy. And so I went and worked as a grievance counselor. And I worked as a grievance counselor for teens going through a terminal illness or with a loved one going through that. I did that for seven years. And the one thing I learned is sometimes you have to just STFU and not speak and just listen. And on my last day there, it's called Tunadito, which means you're a little nest. It's a place in Tucson, Arizona. On my last day, I was joking. And the, you know, my group is like, hey, what did this place teach you? Did it teach you how to be a better, you know, better with patients, with better with families? I'm like, this place taught me how to be a very legit boyfriend. <laughs> shut up and listen. That's awesome. Yes, that's so true. Oh my gosh. A good everything, a good physician, a good <laughs> partner, a good dad, a good everything. And just that's beautiful. You just shut up. Cool. Yeah. Let your kid let your kid talk about the monsters and just let your kid run with it and just be quiet for a second and listen. Oh, okay. So I have a perfect that's a perfect segue to a paradoxical question. Um, you and I I've heard you say this and I love this that scientists need a much louder megaphone. What do you mean by that? Sciences, scientists need to be the like pop cultural phenomena from here on out. Listen, there's a couple silver linings regarding the pandemic. And, you know, in times of tragedy, we, we got to find productive outcomes. And one of them is that epidemiologists, infectious disease doctors, and a lot of frontline workers have become social media rock stars. And I'm glad that that's happening because the scientific process, the analytical method of thinking, evidence-based recommendations, they govern so much of what we do on a daily basis. And I mean, you yourself experience this, you know, people out there want to be empowered and find the right diet for them. But how do they know what is BS and what is not? If I go on right now on Google and I start, uh, start looking up keto diet for six pack abs, I want to look like Brad Pitt from Fight Club. I will find like 15 different articles and not all of them are actually going to make sense. And so what scientists are actively doing by having a louder platform right now is they're teaching people how to be a more empowered and responsible consumer of this information because there's a floodgate of it out there. You know, people can go on Instagram right now and find really good evidence-based information mixed in with a fad diet that does nothing or a claim that celery juice cures every autoimmune disease <sighs> or an ad to buy coronavirus fighting toothpaste from <laughs> InfoWars. It's all out there. And yeah. I don't think that we're actually going to be able to debunk every single myth. I don't think scientists have the bandwidth to do that. But we can, and scientists can, teach people how to kind of find credible information and look for red flags like emotional contagion or swear words or special interest or people trying to sell you something and take a step back and say, okay, hold on. This is triggering something in my head. This might not be real. Let me take a second to look to see if this is credible before I share it or I pass it on as a Facebook post. And I think... That is one of the greatest gifts that science scientists can do to consumers of information. 
Right. The problem is that it gets muddled by all of that misinformation by people that are very powerfully persuasive and it's confusing. And especially with the diet, like you just said, I always say that everyone eats, therefore everyone is an expert on what we're supposed to eat. And it's so confusing for so many people. It's misinformation. I, I hate to give them them. Misinformation is now them. I hate to give them this nod, but misinformation is also sexy, right? Yeah. Like it's flashy and they have really great headlines and they use cool language and they also offer a very quick, simple solution, which is why misinformation has propagated during the pandemic because they're like, here's the cause, here's the treatment, it's BS, take this. And like, it's all, it's, they're like, oh, it's clear. It's, it's cool. It's an answer, which is what I want, which, what I think people want. Right. People, people do not want to sit down and go through the scientific process, but by explaining it and by telling people like, hey, no, 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 no. Here's why that there is not a pill to simply cure coronavirus because here's what it does in your body. Here's how vaccines work. Here's why you can't spot treat and just selectively eliminate fat from your love handles. You know, like just <laughs> a nice thorough explanation, I think is just good for the soul, but also great for information. Yes. Yes. Agreed. And I'm glad that you're saying that. Um, I could talk to you all day. And so I'm going to try to stay to my questions. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll have to have you back. So the next question, I wanted to go kind of back a little bit. You kind of answered this, but um, just about being a physician and taking care of children and babies, what do, would you say is the best part of your job? Whoa. Okay. So I know everyone out there wants me to be like, children are so cute. That's not it. That's not even, that's not even in the top five. All right. Like I, I understand babies are cute, whatever. There's a lot of different ways to work with children, but I just have to get that out there. <laughs> but one of, you know, I already talked about how important it is for me to be there with people and work through medical science when you're working with raw human emotion. We went there. But the other thing I'll talk about that's really cool, I, cool is a strong word, sorry, that's really intellectually <laughs> stimulating about hospital pediatrics is you, not only do you not know what's going to come through the door, what's going to come through the emergency department, but in young children, the differential or the possibility of what it could be causing a symptom is wide open. And for me, that was, that was fascinating. That's what gripped me in medical school. And I'll give you an example. If I get a call right now, I'm in the hospital and it's 2 a.m. and an emergency department calls me from another hospital and says, hey, I got a 15-month-old who is having breathing problems. And that's all I know. In my mind, immediately in under a minute, I'm like, oh my God, is it an infection? Is it asthma? Is it something vascular? Is it a congenital issue that no one found? Is it a congenital heart disease? Did this kid inhale a Lego? And you're all of a sudden thinking about these things because children aren't going to tell you what's happening. They won't necessarily point. And you're only working with these context clues. And so the whole game of being a medical detective, it just really comes out in those moments. And I think that that, that for me was, was captivating. And the other thing I'll say is like children never do it to themselves. What they're going through is either something that they didn't choose for themselves or something that societal situations placed on them. And so that just gave me a much bigger driving force to wake up in the morning or jump up at 4 a.m. and run down to an emergency department is because you're fighting for someone who did not choose their circumstance, but also has a long, long-term potential of bouncing back and doing good for the world. And for me, that is like all the motivation I needed. Gorgeous. God, I love that answer so much. Thank you. Okay. You're also a journalist and you see the upstream and the downstream component of health communications and how it gets delivered to and affects your patients. What's the best part of that part of your job? Everything. <laughs> so being a, being a journalist has been an absolute privilege because of what you mentioned. I think the best part is getting to work backwards. And, you know, I've spent so much time seeing how 
medical information and headlines and news segments affect patient behavior. They affect what people think about sleep, diet, taking medications, whatever it may be. And it's been an, it's been really enlightening to now work on the other end and say, okay, how do we how do we help craft those messages to make sure that it's responsible, that people understand it, that it's fun, that it's engaging, but also so that people know what to do with that headline. And so someone sees a news story and they're like, great, that was fascinating, but like, how does that apply to me? And I think that has been one of the best parts about the job. It's also been one of the most challenging parts. And you know, the one thing I'll just say on a personal style note is I absolutely love live television. And I didn't realize this about myself until I did an internship at ABC News in 2014 when I when I got a little bit of taste of scripting and working with producers on breaking news. And this is going to sound pathologic as hell to someone <laughs> out there, but I almost feel more alive when I'm on camera than when I do in the real world. Don't ask. That's weird. I understand. I get it. I own it. But, I'm not joking. Know. I can totally agree with you. And there's this <laughs> high and this thrill and it's really like stressful and exciting. I totally know exactly what you mean. Yeah. You know, and the last thing I'll say about this is on my last day of that internship, the, the legend herself, Diane Sawyer, pulled me into her office and she was just giving me some life advice. The one thing she told me is she's like, listen, every night when I'm delivering world news to millions of Americans, I try to imagine that I'm sitting in the living room with them. We're just having a casual conversation and I'm teaching them one thing, not zero and not two. And so I make that as my mantra when I'm talking to people is we're just relating. We're having a conversation over a couple martinis at a bar and we're just keeping it real. And I, it's, it, it's gripping and how much fun this is. Well, and you're brilliant at it. I mean, I've seen you and that's exactly how it feels like. You're just like talking and teaching and you're like, yeah, you're so gifted and that's perfect. I love that you said that out loud. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Someone thinks I'm crazy, I promise. Uh, Whatever, who cares? Um, You're fabulous. So, okay, I heard you the last question because honestly, I want to talk to you all day, but we can't. Um, The last question is, well, based on bringing you into the choose you now idea. And I watched you give a really cute video, very sweet video to the graduating medical class of 2020, which is, I can't even imagine what that felt like for them. And I love the way you embraced all of that, but I love that you um, quoted Bruce Lee and you said to hell with circumstance, I create opportunity. And you told them that the world at some point is going to throw you a problem and your unique skill set will be exactly what is needed to solve it. Embrace the uncertainty, celebrate curiosity and be ready. And this is all about to me choosing you now. And I would just love to hear a little bit about how you choose yourself personally. I don't even know how to follow that. That's exactly. <laughs> I will quote Bruce Lee in anything I ever do because I do feel like we are all born with very different circumstances, whether it be your skill set, your your culture, your background, socioeconomics, but everyone has that special something. And for me, it's been it's been a long journey to take a step back and say, what am I good at? What am I bad at? And I do feel like there's some aspects of my career which I'm much better at doing it that I also enjoy doing. And I think for choosing me, it really comes down to take to trying to separate from the outside world and spend a little bit of time with mindfulness, with purpose, with reflection. I started a gratitude journal during the pandemic. And I found that all this indirectly just makes me better at my my present job. So I talk about the world throwing a problem at you and you being ready to solve it. Well, you got to be the right mental space to solve it. And we often talk about disconnecting and putting down our phones and turning off TV, not checking email, all that stuff. But like, I don't know how often people actually practice it. We preach it, but I've been forced or I forced myself to do it, especially because I now have a daughter. 
And that is giving me the motivation I needed to, to choose myself and to choose that moment and just be with her. Because these little things that she's doing, whether it is learning how to shake a rattle or roll over or take three dumps in one morning and ruin multiple outfits, these are fleeting milestones. I'm not going to be able to experience this again. And so I choose myself by focusing on everything I just mentioned and also anything that allows me to be wholly focused in the moment. And this is basically like a PSA for meditation. And I cannot stress enough to everyone out there who's listening the important scientific benefits of meditation and relaxation. And I do that with with journaling, with meditation itself, breathing, yoga, and also martial arts, hence the Bruce Lee nod. Ah. So that is how that is how and why I, I choose me now. Brilliant. Well, I could say that your partner, your daughter, your patients, and your audience are very lucky to have your beautiful light in the world. And thank you so much for sharing some of that with us today. I so appreciate you. You're very kind. I'm glad that you don't think I'm an absolute lunatic for half of what I mentioned. No, I love every word. Thank you so much. We'll have to have you back. I'll be here. I will be here. Juliana, thank you. There is so much wisdom in that podcast. I'm going to listen to it over and over again. I love the whole idea of just STFU and listen. We all could listen a little more. If you are inspired and enjoy the Choose You Now podcast, please subscribe to the show, rate and review us on iTunes, and send us an email with questions and comments at chooseyounowpodcast at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com and download my free cheat sheet on the top five ways to choose you now in your diet at chooseyounowdiet.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love.